This is Inside the Box. Listeners, welcome back to another episode. I'm excited to be here today. This is Trevor Barrett, and I am here, as always, with my good friend David Blakesley. David, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Little little drizzly out here. I'm going to be getting my son and his wife moved into their new house later today, but it's really nice to take a break from the busyness of life and uh, talk about great movies with you again. That sounds good. It's been very dry here in Utah. You do some of that drizzle, but not the moving. I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not helping anybody move today. I know Those that, days will come, yeah. I know that you are uh, thrilled to do it. And, and it, you know, in fact, because of that, we will be kind of moving through this episode rather quickly so you can get off and yeah. make sure that you're there to, to help them in this, uh, this exciting day, I hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> New move. Uh, but listeners, we are here today to talk about the box set, The Samurai Trilogy. Uh, these are three films by Hiroshi Inagaki. Uh, David, this isn't a box set, is it? What are your thoughts well, on that? It's it was. At least, at least Blu-ray, <laughs> right? Blu-ray. It, it used to be. It was uh, three early spine numbers in the Criterion Collection, was it? 13, 14, and 15, I believe. And I, that's how I first... Oh, no, it's 14, 15, 14. 16. So mm-hmm. getting it wrong right off the bat. But anyways, <laughs> yeah. I received these three films as a Father's Day gift way back uh, when, years before this was... Uh, in fact, it must have been 2009 or 10 because I reviewed those films on my blog, my early Criterion Reflections blog before I turned it into a podcast back in 2010. And uh, yeah, my my kids got me this as a Father's Day gift, so I've really treasured that original edition. Mm-hmm. Um, the three DVDs were actually not even originally released as a box. They were just sequential spine numbers in that mm-hmm. original 50, you know, black spines and all of that. And then they kind of upgraded it a little bit to the line logo and that's the edition that i have and uh and those films were were known to not be the best transfers the discs were very much bare bones uh not that the current edition is like Mm -hmm. abundant either you know we'll talk about that uh but then yeah several years later um it was released on blu-ray in a slim pack with uh you know kind of a two disc set you know kind of um overlapped on the inside of the case in a very nicely illustrated new package that kind of gives a little bit more of that vintage samurai era feel um, but you're right it, it's not really what you're going to see as a box set by the traditional terms especially compared to the really <laughs> fabulous editions with all the artwork and the digipacks and the booklets and everything this this is pretty skimpy well let me ask you this it- I, I I did not know that the first time it was released, it was just three sequential DVDs. Mm-hmm. I assumed that it was kind of one of the first Criterion box sets. And taking in, out that out of consideration that, you know, mm-hmm. the first time they put it out was the the three DVDs uh, on your shelves. Is this the first, is this the first one that if you pulled it out and kind of got the release there, the one you have in DVD, is this the first Criterion box set? Um, I think maybe the Brazil special edition might have been the first actual box set that they released in the DVD format mm-hmm. uh, because that was, is that what was that 50? I, I, I may be uh, off of my recollection. There, but, yeah. There, but yeah, it's, it's one of the last of that original Spine series. Mm-hmm. And they released that as a single disc edition and then the, uh, you know, the three different edits and all of that for Brazil. So I think that was probably the first DVD. DVD box set and they had released some other you know laser discs that were kind of like box sets just because you know they were kind of thick packages and all of that so uh, but that's kind of the the early days of criterion lore and i'm a little bit rustier on that um yeah but i was gonna quiz you about oh that's fine no it's it's good (laughs) i I like getting into the minutiae there in, in a way, though, I mean, and I understand they, you know, when it came to year by year, Brazil mm-hmm. may have came first. But if I'm kind of walking through this in spine yeah. number order, I think this is the first what we would have you and I sitting there mm-hmm. looking at this mm-hmm. in spine number order uh, in order to think of what should we do on this podcast? Yeah, here we yeah. are. This is the early one. This is 14, 15 and 16. Like you said, yeah, uh, comes not too long after things like the seven samurai and um the seventh seal, you know, all those, all yeah. those first 10. Yeah. The John uh, Woo films. John uh, Woo. Yeah. Walkabout, yeah. spinal tap. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
some of which hopefully someday we'll we'll be able to fill in all of those gaps and get them all yeah. out on Blu-ray. But who knows? Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is a, a trilogy of films um, that I had not seen before, though I've owned the Blu-ray set ever since it came out. I I feel like that was 2012, 2013. Um, I remember when I received it. Uh, and yep. it's 2012 is what it says on the on the case there yep just anxious to to kind of get to anxious is the wrong word i waited yeah. nine years but you know <laughs> the, excited yeah. excited for the day when it would be an opportunity to watch it um and i didn't know exactly what i was getting into hmm. other than i had heard of this tit- the, the main character the titular character if you look at these in subtitle form um you know the first film uh it's the Samurai Trilogy 1, uh, Musashi Miyamoto. And I had heard of him just a little bit. Know nothing about him. I didn't. I couldn't have told you anything at all other than he's a kind of famous Japanese samurai, probably, I think. You know, that's what I would have said <laughs> a, while, a while back. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that was my knowledge of this. I didn't know much else. But they're made in the in the kind of mid to late fifties, and they're in in Eastman color. Mm-hmm. And David, these films are special. Oh yeah, oh, in, yeah. In, in so yeah. many ways that we, I think we'll be able to get into. It was so fun to sit down and watch kind of an epic film in that era of epic films. You know that mm-hmm. we're we're familiar with in in Western culture. You know we've got a lot of epic films in the late fifties, early sixties in the U.S. and Britain. And here we've got this trilogy of, uh, you know, epic proportions of, of a samurai film in color, I guess is the reason I yeah. want to point it out. I mean, of course, we've had things, um, you know, samurai films before this and samurai films after this. But it's just kind of fun to see plop down right into that era. Um, these these films that were fairly uh, well known. Well, at least the first one. You know, it won an Academy Award. Mm-hmm. Um, so this uh, this made a, an impact. Um, and I'm looking forward to talking about them today. Though we'll do so in a, in a bit of a clipped manner. Um, yeah. I, I'm mindful of the time. I know you are. Uh, listeners, uh, as David mentioned, this this box set doesn't have a whole lot of uh, features com- accompanying it. Um, there's even more online, like on the Criterion website, when it comes to things to read than you get in the in the set. Though the though the essay and that you know there, there's a booklet with a couple of things in it that are still nice to have. Um, you know, I guess we'll be able to focus mostly on the films themselves and their impact on us. And I know you've been doing a little bit more supplementary reading oh, yeah. beyond what Criterion provided. So I'm excited <laughs> yeah. to learn today. <laughs> well, definitely, you know, and I think uh, I'll just kind of start sort of my opening thoughts and that this is mm-hmm. not just the Samurai Trilogy, that this is the Samurai Trilogy because Masashi Miyamoto is like the quintessential mm-hmm. samurai. He is really, he's like the founder of a, a whole school of swordsmanship, the whole dual sword thing, you know, the long sword and the short sword. I mean, that was one of his main innovations right there. And it was considered almost unseemly, but uh, obviously very effective. Uh, but not only was he a great swordsman, uh, I think he survived 60 duels and was never defeated. And of course, when we talk about duels, these are typically duels to the death, you know, when it's, when it's you know, taken to that level. And so he was uh, an extremely, you know, violent and grim and accomplished master of that particular art. But he wasn't just a, a brute warrior. He was a sage. He was a, an artist, a calligrapher, a painter. And and his reputation is sort of almost mythic to the proportion of like uh, Robin Hood or King Arthur in, in kind of Western or English literature uh, in that he has this kind of larger than life persona. But unlike Robin Hood and King Arthur, he was a real person. I mean, we have actual things that that are associated with him. You know, his his original works of art, his, his book, the Book of Five Rings, is probably his most famous uh, surviving writing. Uh, he was involved in, when building a famous castle in Japan. So there's a lot of you know historic you know uh, 
fingerprints and, and footprints of, of Musashi's life that uh, kind of was from the late 1500s to the you know early 1600s, kind of lived right at the transition. And at, at the beginning of the Tokugawa dynasty, which was a very long-lived sort of reign, uh, you know, the shogunate and all of that, that, that is really kind of like the heart of, of Japanese history up until around the, you know, the mid 1800s when everything changed. And of course, then we get into more recent Japanese history from there, but you know, all of those great samurai films and, and movies and stories and the sagas that we're so familiar with really took place in this cold, kind of golden age. And like I say, Musashi Miyamoto is kind of the supreme character, the, the individual of that whole era. And so, you know, many books were written about him, even going back to his lifetime. He was the subject of popular lore and storytelling. And and because he does have that larger-than-life presence, um, he's also the kind of figure that you can take a lot of liberties with as a, as a writer uh, or as a movie maker. Um, and, and that's an important distinction to make right off the bat, that these films are not like a rigorous historic account of the life of Musashi. There are historic mm-hmm. characters, the, the the famous duels and the kind of pivotal events. Uh, those did take place in a form, but uh, the characters, Otsu and Matahachi and, and uh, uh, Akami, uh, they, they are all kind of figments of the author's imagination. And so we, we do have to take this with a grain of salt, but I really appreciate this as a, to me, a very uh, essential sort of text, if you will, in, in terms of understanding the entire samurai genre, especially on film, uh, you know, this is like orthodoxy of samurai, right? Uh, whereas Seven Samurai is kind of one of those samurai films with a little bit of an edge or a twist to it. Uh, and then you get to things like Kobayashi's Harakiri and the samurai films of the 60s, where you're really playing with these themes and subverting them in some ways and showing the the blind spots and the and the biases. This is kind of more of a straightforward, heroic, epic quest. And it's kind of like, you know, the the epitome of what the samurai sort of mythos is all about. Uh, the, the wild strength, the brutality, the violence, uh, but, but tempered by discipline and wisdom and reflection so that there's this kind of zen-like balance. You know, you don't go too far to the extreme one way or the other. You're not too active, not too passive, but always finding the right way, the way of the sword. And that's kind of the the attraction and the elegance of this kind of storytelling. Yeah, and and these these films are based on a on a book, a serial novel that came out from 1935 to 1939 called Musashi by A.G. Yoshikawa. That I, I I think in multiple places as I was looking into this, it's referred to as the kind of Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm sure some of that's because it was written at around the time that Gone with the Wind was, and then the movie Gone with the Wind came out. Um, but it, uh, the other connection that I would have here is, boy, they pack a lot of life. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. There's lots. Films. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I've been listening to the novel on audiobook. Um, you know, just to kind of immerse myself a little bit deeper into this world and understand uh, as best I can the source material. Now, the audiobook is one of like these 55 hour monsters. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm about like 28, 29 hours in. So I haven't even gotten back to the big duel at the temple, which is the end of part two. Yet. Just started it. <laughs> just just <laughs> dipping my toe in there. Right. But get this, 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 this novel, which is like 900 pages in its English translation is itself an abridgment of a, of a uh, 26 thousand page five volume set you know that was the original oh, wow. serialization it's massive and and it is and that's that no gone of, with the wind that uh, <laughs> well it's beyond boy. that yeah, yeah yeah but but i think i think you're right it's it's both the historic era and the massive popularity and also the fact that it chronicles kind of a period of civil war in japan yeah. although yeah. much further back than the american civil war but yeah that whole sweep of of all kinds of side characters and subplots and different details of of the way of life of that time at least how it's imagined by its its author i'm sure he did a lot of historic research and, and had a good understanding of of how life was lived and what kind of tensions and you know conflicts existed within society but yeah just just look at that um, original source material uh that was serialized between like 1935 and 1939 and i think that's just another really important piece of historic context to understand these films 
Um, what was happening in Japan in the late 1930s? Well, they were militarizing, right? Um, the government was ramping up the war effort. They were expansionist, imperialistic, conquering other parts of the, the surrounding territory in Asia and China, the Pacific Islands. Uh, Japan was on a very aggressive footing as they were kind of you know seizing resources and, and building up uh, what they conceived of as a long-lasting empire. And so... What I don't know and what I don't want to speculate too much about is whether the original material was openly supportive of that or or was in some ways kind of subversive or contradictory, um, because obviously um, to a militaristic government like Japan, there's a lot to uh, a, a lot of th that's attractive to them about the samurai character, you know, the the warrior who's disciplined, who follows orders who shows no mercy on the battlefield, but is also a cultivated and civilized person, uh, that can be pretty useful for a nation that wants to kind of recruit its young men to become warriors themselves and soldiers under command. Um, and so, yeah, so you've got that part of Japanese society that's kind of, that Japanese history, I should say, that is kind of leading up to the years of World War II. And then actually Inagaki had done this very story. He had done a three-part series of Miyamoto films, uh, Musashi films, that, that were apparently lost, whether they were destroyed or actively censored, I don't know. Uh, but he had basically the dry run, if you will, and then... In the 40s. In the, the 40s, yeah, like I thought it was a 42 through 44, yeah. something so, so like so it would be a war film in a way, it, mm -hmm. absolutely. And so, and again, you know, we've, we've talked about like the Kenosha films and the uh, Kurosawa early films in our old Eclipse Viewer podcast. You know, the government had a lot of control over what went into movies at that time, and if you were too far off the path, you got censored, uh, or and possibly punished for that. So it would be fascinating, but I, I you know, obviously will never have that experience. But the other thing with these movies too is that they were made, you know, sh very shortly after the American, uh, you know, occupation had ended, and and the American uh, era of post-war Japan uh, really forbade this type of movie making. You could not. You, know, you could not celebrate feudal values, uh, warrior and, and swordsmanship and, and, and that kind of ethos was not really allowed. The, the Americans were very intent on demilitarizing Japan as much as they could while they had that kind of influence and authority. And so in like 52, 53, I think is when the Americans basically said, okay, you can have your country back now. And they, and they got out of formally running the show. Um, and, and so, boy, one of the very first things that you see is a resurgence of interest in samurai films. Uh, the Japanese movie industry had started getting some international attention with films like Rashomon and uh, some of Kurosawa's other films. Mizuguchi got into it with Ugetsu, you know, another sort of Japanese ghost story, bringing back some of those old traditions. And and here, these films in color, uh, that was still a pretty unique thing. Uh, and so they kind of pulled out all the stops and, uh, you know, they won an Academy Award for the first installment. And I think this really was a, almost an outreach effort to, you know, reintroduce Japanese cinema to the wider Western world. And I think it definitely was very much embraced with, and you see that in, in the popularity of samurai movies then and ever since. And let me know your thought. I, I think there would be an interesting study and you'd be the guy to do it, David, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> on the source material coming pre-war, the trilogy in the middle coming in the middle of the war. And then this afterwards, um, but I would, I would say I didn't see a whole lot of uh, dealing with war issues in this film. I mean, mm -hmm. not to say that there's not some themes that, that handle conflict. I mean, there's a civil war going on in the background of this movie or these movies. But I just, I guess what I mean is to me, this felt like classical filmmaking. I mean, this feels mm -hmm. more like Ben-Hur than, yeah. than anything that would be you know, oh, watch that and see how they really feel about the American occupation or about World right. War II or about their rebuild. It just seems like, hey, we've got a studio. We've got some Eastman color film stock. We've got a mm -hmm. great story. It doesn't seem too aggressive. It seems quite, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I would say the, the, the part of these that I maybe didn't care for the most would just be that it's a pretty routine uh, dealing of, you know, it, it almost felt soap opery at times with just characters oh, yeah. coming in yeah. and out and 
and mm-hmm. conf- conflicts with each other in a, in a, in a more dramatic way than in any kind of, um, you know, let's really explore some deep human themes. Kind right. of way. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm being a little unfair there, but. Well, I, I it kind of goes back to my original thought that like, this is sort of like the mainstream crowd pleaser mm-hmm. right down the middle. All the uh, way here, to America that would not necessarily yeah. <laughs> be looking for this. Yeah. Right. But, but you know, the thing is, I, I think in my original review in, in 2010, I kind of likened this to, you know, the film trilogies that then and, and to this day are, are, were a big thing. You know, Lord of the Rings, Matrix, Star Wars. Uh, we can add some of the comic book movies, you know, the MCU and the DCU and all that. Although those films have gone way beyond the, the trilogy format, you still have that same kind of classical arc, you know, and you can get into Joseph Campbell and all of that if you want. But, you know, again, the, the rugged, misguided, somewhat, you know, no potential kind of misfit uh, who still has some kind of raw power um, lurking below the surface. Uh, you know, they, they demonstrate their kind of wild energy, their untamed, undisciplined approach. Uh, they come to the attention of some wise mentor. They go through a process of deprivation and, and humbling <laughs> and discipline. And then they kind of recognize that they've got to, you know, practice that self-control and, 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 take their discipline to the next level and and through that become these heroic figures and audiences love identifying with that you know um and and so there is a there is a such a sort of a formula that's almost followed here and it's been exploited so much in our own popular entertainment that this can feel like really basic but i i I would say this is kind of like a foundation Mm -hmm. out of which all of these later entertainments built upon and and refined and and the same with that kind of more subversive or, or kind of sly or cynical approach that you get with the Kobayashis and then later right. on the Imamuras and others where they are really, you know, the Oshimas, they're, they're actively deconstructing all of those traditional ways, but it's good to understand what those traditional ways really were and, and are put forward in a very straight, you know, straightforward, sincere, earnest way. And these are very earnest films, you know, the yeah. values and the ethos is right there on the surface and, and it's great for what it is. Uh, and then you, you, you you get that formula down, you understand those ideas, those tropes, and then you play with them a little bit. But but this is, like I say, this is kind of original source material, and I really value it for that purpose. That's a really good point. It's not, it would be easy to dismiss these as trite or, or uh, you know, you, you, you put the right word on it, very, um, very earnest uh, films, and, and therefore look at that in a value judgment kind of way as, well, not too much there. But there is that you know you're right. There's a lot to to look at and dig into as far as just the stories that it wanted to tell, and that earnestness is definitely a part of some of you know all of our favorite movies. Mm-hmm. You know that we come back yeah. to it again and again from our youth or from you know our you know from our own 1950s uh, American cinema, um, and and so there there's just there was just so much. I I just really enjoyed it. I'm looking at the clock here. Yeah, uh, let's got go ahead and get into the movies. <laughs> well, well, let me ask you yeah, this. Yeah, I, sure. I almost feel like we can go through the movies themselves rather quickly. Oh, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, you know, I mean, it's Musashi Miyamoto uh, growing. <laughs> mm-hmm. It, it mm-hmm. starts when he's about 16 years old in real life. Um, though yeah. it's played, he's being played by Toshiro Mifuni, who is not 16 years old. Yeah, um, he doesn't do teenager very well. He does a lot of no, things really I, well. But I only do that kid. from looking at it uh, <laughs> yeah, elsewhere. Yeah. I would have had no idea that this was a, a kid uh, going through all of this. Um, and, and then goes until he's about 29 and kind of has a famous duel. And, but you know, he has a long life afterwards, the, the real Miyamoto character. Um, so I think we can go through those fairly quickly so that we can mm-hmm. talk about um about Inagaki a little bit more about sure. the, about the the beautiful um photography. I I don't want to watch these films on those old DVDs ever David. I just can't no. even imagine. <laughs> Cuz yeah, they they were they didn't even loss. fill the screen. They they had black bars uh, all top and bottom and sides and Lord and and just kind of grainy and that that was my original viewing experience and you could sort of see the the, the seeds of the beauty there and just to have them of course was a privilege once upon a time but uh right yeah in this world we're <laughs> spoiled now and we demand 
uh, you know, the best resolution. And, and they are gorgeous. They really look great. I was really pleased with the transfer and, and the ability to really yeah. immerse myself in this world. Yeah. Um, and, and then we've got Mifune himself uh, mm-hmm. to, to talk about. Um, so, I, you know, let, let's let's look at the films individually, um, because that's one of the reasons why we're here. But I don't sure. necessarily think we need to really dive in and go. Well, especially film number two. I they really kind of blend together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, if I yeah. even went through that and tried to talk just on general plot points, I think we'd be here for a half hour. That film is <laughs> yeah. kitchen sink thrown in it several yeah. times <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but why don't you go ahead and uh, if you want to introduce us to the first film and yeah. and to the Miyamoto characters it comes to us um, and and especially to someone like me maybe you know that didn't know who Musashi Miyamoto was other than by vague reputation sure yeah well talking about vague reputation my first encounter with the character was around 1980 when James Clavell's Shogun was a adapted for a TV miniseries and uh, there was like this wave of Japanese you know Japanophilia or whatever in American culture my dad actually read the novel Musashi the same that one that was the source material that we've already talked about so I was aware of Musashi as like this ultimate samurai character um, although I never read it myself so I've kind of known about this reputation of the he's the man he's the swordsman and all of that Uh, but this really is kind of the part one Musashi Miyamoto is kind of an origin story we've already talked about his youth and and the first scenes are him sitting up in a tree, literally just kind of on his haunches, watching this uh, parade of of you know mighty warriors, and there's some kind of nobleman at the heart of it. Uh, that the villagers are awed and stunned that, that these high and mighty men have have deigned to pass through their lowly little village. So it's a bit of a big event, a big spectacle, and and there you see. Uh, Musashi, uh, well, Takazo is his name at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's watching and and dreaming of his own future adventures. He wants to get out of town. He's kind of a misfit. His family is kind of a mess. He's a little bit of the the, the local bad boy, and he's with his friend Matahachi, who is engaged to a young woman named Otsu. And uh, you know he's got a little bit more of a stable, established life ahead of him in this village. But they both decide that they're going to kind of take off and have an adventure, get in the war, and uh, you know just kind of see the world and make a name for themselves. And that's basically what happens. This this famous battle of Sakigahara, which was one of those pivotal moments in the Japanese Civil War that led to the the shogunate and all of that. Um, you know, they were on, actually on the losing side. So, you know, they, they, they dream of going off for adventure. And the next thing you know, there they are digging ditches in the rain. You know, that's their mm-hmm. that's their big uh, accomplishment. But they managed to survive the battle. There is kind of a nice kind of early in the film set piece of this of this famous battle. You know, warriors on the charge and, you know, guns and, 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 and munitions are just beginning to enter the sort of the, the technology of war and and so in the process but you know they they end up uh encountering a woman and her daughter the woman is they're they're kind of grave robbers or they, they pick uh, treasures off the bodies of dead samurai so that's kind of a shameful you know lowly thing to do kind of a criminal enterprise if you will uh but that kind of gets them involved in in this this kind of rival to Otsu, who becomes kind of a, the the recurring love interest throughout the whole trilogy, and that's a woman named Akami. So Otsu is kind of like the noble, virtuous hometown girl who's very demure, very traditional, very subservient. Akami, who's been brought up by her corrupt mother, is a kind of more of a lusty worldly woman. Uh, they're both very attractive, but kind of in two different. Uh, ideals of femininity, if you will. You know, Akami is wily and shrewd and crafty. Otsu is as pure as the driven snow, or at least that's how they're portrayed, right? Yeah. And and so, yeah, so you basically, the, the first film, you're, you're kind of meeting these characters. Um, after after uh, Takazo falls out of favor and gets in, himself into a lot of trouble, he becomes a re- refugee, a wanted man, hunted down um you know he's basically there's a bounty put on his head because he's committed some you know outrages and and, and, and it's through his ferocity as a fighter that uh, he's going to cross some lines and uh he ends up becoming sort of the captive of this priest a man named takawan and he becomes the that wise mentor who kind of breaks and and tames 
Masashi, uh, or Takazo, I need to keep going back to that. He, he, uh, he breaks Takazo the same way that Takazo was breaking horses when he was staying with that woman. So you sort of see uh, Takazo uh, humbled, uh, partly by being hung up in a tree and made into a bit of a spectacle. And again, it's a great... Uh, Mufune performance you know he's just got all that wild unbridled energy and now here he is literally wrapped up in a rope suspended <laughs> about 15-20 feet up in a tree kicking and barking and yelling and you know fighting his way out of it the best he can but he's he's completely bound well Otsu lets him go I know I'm in the spoilers here but whatever um, Otsu <laughs> you know craftily lets him go in the middle of the night because she's so dedicated to him she realizes he's suffering and that he might actually die of exposure out there which gives uh takazo another break he goes back on the lamb again but ends up getting captured one more time by the priest and is kind of tricked into going into the attic of this upper room in the castle that's full of ancient books and manuscripts and he gets locked in there by the priest and say you're going to spend a lot of time in this room read those books you know continue your your purification your pilgrimage if you will by being stuck in this room and as i was watching it it's like you know i could think of worse fates than to be stuck right. in the upper room say, er, earlier you said deprivation i was like yes it is there i would not want that but at the same yeah. time you look at that especially you know you can see my room behind me and a lot of books <laughs> that, that have been unread here yeah wouldn't mind getting stuck in here for just, just a few <laughs> hours even you know yeah. uh, not yeah. not the eternity that he was kind of uh, you know psychologically forced to endure in that room yeah, especially the that, way that he got put into it, you know, the, right. he's looking for Atsu and and he's tricked, and there there it is, and oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> but but that is part of his his discipling, if you will. He he yeah. becomes a student. He becomes reflective. He recognizes that there are limits to where what brought brute raw strength can accomplish for you in this world. And, uh, you know, his, his consciousness is expanded by the, the, by pondering the wisdom of the, of the old sages. And he sort of becomes one himself. And so, uh, he realizes even though he's had this kind of what you almost might call a conversion experience, he has much to learn. And now that he's been in the room for a couple of years reading and thinking, now he's got to go out in the world and kind of, prove himself and that's where you get again uh, that's the the end of the first movie is basically him uh leaving the village and out to make his way otsu is left waiting at the bridge you know very poignant uh, but again a little bit on the hokey side if you really want to view it from kind of more of a, a postmodern deconstructed perspective it's like oh yeah we've all seen this before but i really i, I think it's best to kind of leave a little bit of that uh, jadedness <laughs> aside as you're mm-hmm. watching these films and just really take them on their own terms because they really are uh, pretty splendid uh, if you just accept them at face value and, and just go with it yeah and and it kind of my so i had issues with the second film yeah. um mm-hmm. not for it's again filmmaking i thought was beautiful uh mifune is is great though i thought that left him behind a little bit too often to focus on a lot of side characters and their own development um though one of them is going to be very principal in the third film and i think it pays off to do that there Mm -hmm. um but boy this this uh love triangle that you you pulled out there with uh akimi and and otsu uh just keeps on going and going and going and it it can get a little bit tiring i think to keep on leaving otsu or for when they finally get together for otsu to then not be ready herself to commit (laughs) i was like why have you been following me all over japan if um if we're not going to become an item and i i get that it's not that simple for her or for him um but yeah, the, the they keep on kind of uh, coming together and then having to be separated, um, often by their own choices, not because of history, not because they're being pulled apart all the time by war or you know other you know duels, though that does happen. But pulled apart too by their, and I think this is a good thing. You know, it, it focuses on it, it, not not necessarily her development, but his. You know, is he ready? Uh, mm-hmm. Yet, has he learned what he's supposed to learn as a swordsman? As this, uh, ha- and and not just the skill. In fact, I really like that the his mentors say, "Look, you're too strong. Yep, you can rely on this. Um, 
it, it isn't that he doesn't have the sword skill. It's not that he, but but is does he have the humility? Has he developed that other part of him, the control, the ability to care about what he's doing as well as those he's fighting? You know, can is it just a fight and then he wins and he moves on, um, and or or does he does he respect the people who come at him uh, and and the reasons for it? And I think it gets into that more as the second film starts to end, and mm-hmm. especially in the third film. Uh, the second film is called Duel at Ichijoji Temple, and again we get to know more characters in this film. I would say you know if I were to sum it up in a nutshell, he's got a bunch of you know he's now the man. Uh, Musashi Miyamoto is fairly famous in the in the area. He's thwarted the you know when he was a refugee, he's been able to successfully uh, duel many people. There's a great duel at the beginning of this one mm-hmm. where he's fighting a uh, an older guy, swinging the the chain and 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 fighting with a sickle. And I'm like, well, I, mm-hmm. I don't know what I, I might rather have the swords, you know. But that looks cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's almost it is. like it's... A, then I really thought of like Spartacus and Ben Hur and you know Gladiator oh, yeah. kind of films when they're having that duel. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I cut you off there for a second. No, no, just just kind of showing some of those battle techniques. I mean, I think again, there's a pretty good pacing here. You know that they're mm-hmm. they're they're oh, a it, good it speeds through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's always stuff happening, and and there's a lot of story that they pack in here. Yeah. But but you're right. Uh, uh, there is you know there are the you know the combat set pieces. Uh, there's a, just a lot of really beautiful use of landscape and uh, the the the, yes. the villages, the period setting. Um, you know, they, they, they make the best use of the color with all the costumes and all of that. And again, this was, this is all very new stuff, both for Japanese audiences to see all of this in bright, vivid color. And certainly for Americans, it's like, you know, you've seen your Westerns, you've seen your, you know, your kind of medieval, you know, you've seen your war movies. You ain't seen nothing like this before. And and that really is pretty, pretty smart, uh, eye catching and and pretty stunning. And, and not just in the battle scenes, but in, uh, This was a very fascinating thing that I really loved about the second movie. Inagaki shows us the first duel. You know, we see Mm -hmm. that play out. But several of the other things, he's showing us something else while a duel or a battle is going on, you know, on the corner of of the Mm -hmm. scene or even not on stage. There's There's the introduction of our, you know, I can't call him a bad guy, but the the primary um, the rival antagonist yeah. of the second yeah. of the third movie who's not you know he's almost a protagonist in his own right the way he's introduced here um uh, he comes and and see, uh, just to watch Miyamoto fighting a bunch of you know men and and uh, because he's got uh, Musashi Miyamoto has now this reputation and so their clans their their schools of um of warriors or students who now want to take him down you know, oh, they, yeah, they, yeah. they have their, they have, they probably have their excuses and their reasons for it, but really it's because they want to be the guy or the group that took down, you know, it's kind of like an old West movie, you know, they want, yeah. they want to be the one who gets the, I'm now the fastest shot in the land, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, and this, uh, this other, well, warrior. and this whole thing about okay. the, the honor and, and the, and the notoriety, the fame, you know, that, that's the thing. It's like, you're, you're going to stake your whole life on being like you say the man and mm-hmm. and 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 all of the emphasis that's put on this this concept of of honor and valor and combat again it's a very martial uh, kind of a hyper masculine uh, approach to life you know very competitive and um, you're you're consistent you're continuously refining your skill bringing your level you know your game up to the next level inventing new sword fighting techniques you know so that you're kind of you're you're advancing the art i mean this is a very vibrant productive scene if you will that is that is taking uh you know putting a lot of effort into creating new methods and and establishing a schools of discipline which is another i think another big piece of this this is uh, this is uh, musashi versus the you know the vulgar and and crude and somewhat decadent uh school uh of sejiro that that uh that that's kind of like the main thrust there is that as a founder of a school himself mm-hmm. and and these schools are kind of cultural institutions uh, of the time 
and and that whole idea has, had advanced quite a bit. You see that in the martial arts. You've got judo, you've got karate, you've got you know all the different styles and disciplines, and and that goes, of course, outside of Japan into into China you know, and and Korea as well. So you've you've just you've got you know this whole tradition being sort of played out here of what's a good school? What's a school that actually ennobles its students versus one that just exploits them or is just, you know, out for fame and greed and power versus, you know, a more cultivated aesthetic, um, a a kind of a wiser way of living. Uh, So so that's where you get some of this philosophical type of thing. It's, it's not, it's not expanded upon greatly, but you sort of see the, uh, within the, the school that, that occupies this temple, uh, there's kind of a flattery, there's kind of a decadence because the leader, uh, he's got all of his yes men around him, but they also kind of know deep down, he's really not a good Mm -hmm. match for, for Musashi. Uh, but we have to sort of suck up to him because he's the boss guy. Um, but boy, when I get a chance, I'll take Musashi down or, or I'll just kind of cower in the shadows and play it safe and try to keep my boss out of trouble so we can continue living our comfortable life. Yeah. That, and that's, that's a great part of this, this film is that, that dynamic there of them trying to protect him and the excuses they say, you know, he's not worth fighting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but then the, the master's uh, brother comes in and is kind of embarrassed for mm-hmm. uh, this. He sees what's been going on and he sees that his brother is, uh, you know, he's the master. He can dang well go out and fight whoever he wants to fight, you know? And if you can't um, back it up, then you deserve to die anyway. That's the, the other exactly. part of the ethos. Like, you know, walk your talk right but that doesn't really work out uh for the <laughs> for the brother who says right. go and just take care of it anyway but um some of my other uh, speaking of that that particular scene that's another one where um musashi miyamoto you know toshiro mifune is, is is having his duel but we go back to watching one of the women uh dancing and singing um and it's beautiful to watch and we don't see the duel at all you know, mm-hmm. it's it's the aftermath of that when he comes back and has already uh, taken care of it. And um, I really like those kinds of choices that that Inagaki makes to to dramatize this with different emotions than just yeah. a duel and the excitement there. It, it kind of reminds me of like Ozu when he's all all this hype leading up to the wedding, and then the wedding is like two frames, and he's like, "Oh, now it's after the <laughs> wedding," you know. It, it's like what you choose to skip, and not by not having it there is a statement itself, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there are other duels like that as well, where you see Musashi surrounded, and there's a whole bunch of guys chasing after him, and then the next thing you know, well, he escaped from all that. <laughs> it's like, oh, how did, did he? Do- <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> If only yeah. they did that in modern day superhero movies, you know, yeah. stop yeah. showing us a 45 minute fight scene and get to the emotion, <laughs> you know, let's, let's see. Right. right. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's Duel at Ichijoji Temple. There's a lot that goes on in this film. There's a lot more with, um, with his, uh, Musashi's, uh, youth, uh, you know, t- friend who left with him and his own, um, insecurities because he's, he, he's a betrayer in a way and, and kind of a scoundrel. Um, and so there's some stuff going on with him and then we kind of tone it down again for Samurai three, the duel at Gunrio Island. This to me was a much more Mm. straightforward, you know, focused film, uh, when it comes to Miyamoto's own, um, development, um, it, there, there's, there's some great duels in it again, but they're, they're a little bit farther in between and the motives of the duels are to see honor and to see beauty and to see two people kind of transcendent, um, mm-hmm. you know, on their, on their conf- the collision course, um, as they, uh, but, but a respectful one where they do like each other and boy, David, that final duel scene in the sunset with the water. That is some fantastic filmmaking. <laughs> well, uh, let me clarify. It's sunrise, okay? I oh, mean, yes, I, yes, 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 yes. It, it, you're right. As yeah, it gets lighter, yeah. and yes, I apologize. I, well, at first, I, I thought it was sunset for the yep. longest time. And then as the film ended, I was like, oh, that was sunrise. But that didn't I, stick, I, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do wonder if that's kind of a, a Western bias, because I originally read it as sunset as well. But then you realize it's getting lighter. The sun's actually coming up. And, of course, Japan, the land of the rising sun and all of that. Yeah. Uh, which, and, and, and the themes there. Of, yeah. You know, this, is oh, yeah. The, this is the rise of uh, of really, you know, the, yeah. 
the the man you know the, because no longer just a man right i mean in a sense literally uh, he achieves enlightenment at the end of the film at least within the the arc of the story not in some kind of you know touch of zen type of you know cosmic <laughs> trippy way or anything like that but but you know he kind of reaches the end of his journey but i do want to you know reel it back a little bit before we get all the way there and i also want to say i i did enjoy the the battle in the muddy rice paddy at the yeah. end of uh, yes. episode two yeah. because again um this is part of the sort of the you know once you've developed sort of a, a taste and a, an appreciation you sort of recognize it's not just what you do with the sword it's how you position your body it's how you step back or step in and and i'm far from an accomplished martial artist of any sort myself but i think i've learned a little bit and and those are the things that you you begin to sort of look at and appreciate and and here you know you see miyamoto uh, musashi is very clearly outnumbered the odds are against him but he finds this one little elevated ridge that he can walk backwards on and kind of lure the crowd toward him because between only, rice patties right because their only approach is through the mud and they're already at a disadvantage their their feet are bogged down they're stumbling they're staggering and that's what allows him to you know back his way up and then he can run and take off and so there's there's a great strategy and and if you ever have a chance to um, read the book of five rings which is the the extent writings of musashi miyamoto he talks quite a bit in depth it's just really nice it's very short you can read it in a few hours and it's both got fighting techniques as well as the philosophy of of give and take you know there is this kind of zen-like quality to it and it's just it's 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 pretty cool to see mifune enacting all of that you know it's not just having the biggest sharpest weapon uh or you know bludgeoning your opponents into submission it's the elegance of of the one cut the strike that's perfectly timed at that very small opening that your opponent allows that gives gives you the advantage and the ability to survive this fateful encounter and 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 that's definitely where where episode three is leading and you also see the divergence of the ways kojiro sasaki the the main rival character he's the one who's very much focused on his reputation and how he's seen and and he he's the one who's boasting of his swallow turn technique and he he slices a bird in midair at the beginning of the film he's a fancy dresser he knows how to court favor of the wealthy and the powerful he becomes kind of like the hired gun for for uh another school uh, to say okay i can be your guy you know um i will i will bring honor to your name and it's like so what they're doing is is purchasing glory because they've got the money they hire this hot shot and he's he's their guy so there's no real discipline there's no real kind of spiritual growth or maturity it's just it's just gaudy purchased power because they've got the resources and they can do that. Uh, Musashi's way is is humbler. He he strips down. He goes to live with a vil- with peasants in a village. He tills the earth and grows crops as part of his training and as part of his discipline. You know he's certainly very conscious of cultivating his skills and and becoming wiser, sharper, stronger. You know all of that. But it's not about serving the needs of his ego. He doesn't need to be regarded as the best. He just needs to know that he himself is the best. And that's that's really all he's striving for. So again, you've got this whole sort of, you know, contrast played up. Uh, yeah, you can you can practice, you can be famous, you can be notorious and and, you know, back up all of that hype with with performance, which is what Kojiro Sasaki is able to do uh, until it gets to that kind of final climactic moment so the duel is great maybe we can save that for just a little bit what what did you think about the um how the the romantic uh, triangle arcs are are all resolved because yeah everybody kind of has their fate settled in this matahachi is dispatched uh, akami and otsu i mean it's almost ridiculously coincidental how their paths just kind of cross Mm -hmm. at just the right time, but that's part of the story and the escapism of great story of great uh, sagas like this. You got to just accept it. Uh, Unless, unless you think that, Oh, she's been following him forever. You know, (laughs) their, their paths were destined to to cross again because she's always there. She's always, um, she's always behind him, you know, kind of going, going towards that. And, and, 
yeah, I, I think we probably could, t- if if we were sitting down and watching the first couple of films and thinking, okay, these are going to be, these are going to be classically resolved. I think we get that classical resolution mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. You know, that we, we knew he, he was never going to end up with Akimi. Um, and Matahachi didn't deserve um, anything better, <laughs> you know, right, really, right. Uh, when it comes to storytelling and, and uh, the just desserts of, of all that and more of a classical telling. Yeah, he um, should have just gone home from the war, married Otsu and been a respectable villager, but he got ambitious and vain and there mm-hmm. you go. <laughs> and and t- taking things that didn't belong to him, not mm-hmm. just um, not just uh, physical possessions, but um skills and and titles and you know things you know he he he's a fraudster yeah he 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 impersonates kujiro until he gets caught and confronted that way you know by again picking up a certificate you know that he found uh, to prove his swordsmanship and you're right it's it's illicit yeah he's trying to he, he he wants to be something i mean he recognizes that he that he has failed and i actually really like the marahachi character because it isn't so simple as he's a scoundrel he's kind of pushed there because of a choice choices he makes at the beginning of the first yeah. film and he was a good person you know a little bit over ambitious again he follows his friend off to civil war and he had dreams of something different he, and i think he did want to come back home and um and be a great man you know yeah uh, but when that didn't happen and every step he takes is in the opposite direction. You you get the, he he feels it and he knows it, and that's why he resorts to this kind of trickery because he he needs to delude those around him. He needs to impress, um, and he needs to figure out some way to be even if it's not by the best uh, methods. The person he he thinks he would like to have been had he you know made some different choices. So I, I actually yeah. really liked his arc because he isn't just the fallen character there's there's some humanity there that that comes across as well despite yeah, the fact I think, that uh, it yeah. took me a while to figure out who who, who we were talking you know not who we were talking about but he's played by a different actor in the second mm-hmm, film mm-hmm. and that threw me for a while yeah yeah <laughs> you know i think he serves as sort of the, the proverbial warning to young men don't get over your head know your place know your limits i mean that mm-hmm. that's kind of part of the lessons if you will of of humility right yeah not everybody can be a musashi not even everybody can be a kojiro you know um sometimes your place is just to you know to fit in to be honorable to be noble uh to be you know uh, honest and trustworthy and 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 to leave it at that so yeah there's there's all kinds of interesting you know character arcs i i think you know there's probably the the thing that may not sit the well the best with a lot of viewers especially younger viewers is you know the very rigid gender dynamics i mean the women uh, otsu in particular is kind of simpering and 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 it's it's a little bit too much you know Uh, she's so hemmed in by her need to be portrayed as this demure chaste icon of traditional femininity um, and even though Akami isn't really, you know, slut shamed or anything like that, but you can sort of see a little bit of that uh, bleeding through. Yeah. And there, and there so, is yeah. some humanity to her still, though. Oh, for too. sure, absolutely. Like you yeah. do, you again. It would be easy to say she's just the corrupt, you know, uh, grave robber who will also take advantage of men, because she does all of that. Mm-hmm. But. I liked her too and and wanted her to find some way to become who she also yearned to become. You know, she recognized Mm -hmm. something better and wanted to become it, just didn't know exactly how to get there. Yeah. And, and, you know, she has a tragic ending, um, but it's kind of like she, there's a redeeming moment at the end as well. So uh, again, you know, there's, there's little traditional bits of wisdom and, and uh, if you will, echoes of the patriarchy that come through all of that. Mm -hmm. And, and it it is what it is. So, you know, you you do with, do with those elements of the story uh, what you will. I think it's, it's again, if nothing else, just a, a good portrayal of these, you know, again, traditional values uh, that were pr- kind of prevalent in Japanese society. And once you recognize that, then you say, well, what do we do with that now? How does that affect the way we live today? But yeah, we probably should kind of get into wrap-up phase just to kind of keep uh, mm-hmm. things moving on my own time schedule. So let's just talk about that that duel. Uh, it is, you know, very elegant um, with, again, the positioning of, of the body. You know, Miyamoto comes into the scene 
on a boat rowed by <laughs> his kind of new sidekick. Uh, uh, well, he's got two sidekicks. Jotaro, we haven't really talked about. He's the kid no, sidekick, yeah. but that's <laughs> fine. Well, you can discover Jotaro on your own. But this other character whose name escapes me at the moment, he's a little bit more of a rough hewn character. But he's one who kind of paddles uh, Musashi onto Ganryu Island, uh, which in historic terms is a very small little patch of land. Uh, I, I, I saw... Uh, photos of the actual spot there's a, a really beautiful sculpture there depicting this cumulative you know, climactic battle but it's really it's a small island between you know two coasts that are not very far apart from each other and then a little bit of a bay not the wide expanse of ocean that we see in the film but again musashi he, he's stepping back into the waves he's keeping the sun behind him he's not going to let kojiro get that angle because the the, the blinding of the rising sun is part of Masashi's strategy there. He's also using a wooden sword, which again is a historic fact. Um, he, he carved an oar and made a sword as he was, and that might, there might be some legend to it, but this is the historic uh, account as we know it. He, uh, he got a, he made a wooden sword that was just like a couple inches longer than uh, Kojiro's very famous, what they call it, the drying pole or something like that. It's like, like almost like this three foot long sword. And um, the historic record shows that it was pretty much a, a hard strike to the head uh, of Kojiro that, secured Musashi's victory uh, whereas in the film it's a little bit more of an elegant and and it's not exactly clear but you see him pulling both swords he's got the huge wooden sword in one hand and his short sword in the other and uh, you know very dramatically the whole you know battle comes to its conclusion and then we see Musashi you know even though, even though he gets praised by a couple of witnesses to this huge battle uh, about how splendid it was, and he he is able to walk away victorious and gets back in the boat, um, he's got a very mournful look on his face. He's survived. He's he's defeated the best rival that he will ever know, and in a certain sense, this part of his life is over now. And I believe that that is pretty pretty accurate as well i think this might have been mm -hmm. the last duel that musashi fought in uh as a as a swordsman and he became more of a not a hermit but you know he he kind of turned from those ways he was at that point 29 30 years old which maybe is a little old for that type of combat anyways and you know kind of applied his energies in new directions but i i couldn't help but think you know as as you see the picture of mifune there's a there's a you know barely concealed tear a downcast dejected look on his face i mean how much uh was that a, a sort of a a reflection of the survivors of of the japanese war you know the men in the audience who had seen similar you know comrades fall alongside them in battle or had just you know, survived that horrible ordeal. And here they are, you know, almost a decade later now watching this movie and maybe dealing with some survivor guilt, uh, or just the, the, you know, the trauma that had to be repressed and contained, uh, after all the things that they went through in the war and what the nation of Japan itself experienced. So I, I feel like there was maybe a cathartic element to the telling of this story and where it fits into the sort of evolution of Japanese culture of the mid fifties. Yeah, that's a good point. Not something that I had thought about um, because it is, he's mourning the, um, the fact that this great rival has, has died. Uh, he didn't necessarily want to do this duel He's doing it because that's just the world around them. You know, mm -hmm. it's the shogunate. It's the, it's all the politics. It's the, um, it's the fact that if he doesn't do it, um, you know, the, what ramifications might that have on his own, on his own life and on his own ability to do things. You know, he, uh, he, he comes to it re reluctantly, but, but willingly at the same time, you know, because he has to. <laughs> yeah, well, and, that, well, and isn't that the way of war i mean there are people who mm -hmm. obviously lust and 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 gleefully jump into battle uh but musashi it, 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 almost like the zatoichi character you know in another franchise a, mm -hmm. uh, a decade or two later um you know, he, he resorts to violence because he has to, but he laments the fact that this world makes it so, so necessary. Uh, and he recognizes that if you don't 
do it yourself, you're going to be the next victim. And so it's just like this, this awful dilemma that we all have to endure. And so that's being kind of captured in these films, um, as well as a way of finding um, your path through all the madness, all the destruction, all the chaos into, um, uh, you know, a, a way of life, a, 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 dis- a discipline that, that brings serenity and peace and some degree of resolution, uh, uh, despite all the, the craziness and, and all the pressures and all the torments that one must endure in this world. Hmm. Well, and it, it is a great ending to the whole series. You get the sunrise, which I know it's a sunrise. I feel so dumb, but <laughs> um, I've seen I've seen the same mistake or you know assumption made in other blogs, which is which yeah. is kind of where I wonder if it is kind of a Western bias to think about it. It, that it, way. it yeah. certainly has that role, right? I mean, yeah. well, and it's also blood red. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it looks like a sunset. You know, it's what mm-hmm. we are used to seeing when we go to the beach or whatnot. Yeah, um, behind uh, Toshiro Mifune, often on kind of a projected screen. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a blood red uh, sunrise, which is not too familiar to me. You know, I'm used to seeing that as a sunset here in the West mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. when when I go to go out. Um, but the 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 choreography of these of these things. Oh, yeah. Now, I don't know enough about um, martial arts to know if this would actually work. I know that you know in fencing they don't fence in real life the way you see fencing portrayed in the movies, but there's an elegance there that they're capturing in the movies that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on purpose. And I, that may be the same case here, but boy, what, you know, you talked about him walking backwards on that little um, strip of, of, you know, dirt, mud, wet, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you watch his feet. It looks like a ballet dancer, not, oh, yeah, not on yeah. point, but just the, the intricacy of him navigating without looking down, um, to make sure he himself does not fall into the mud. And yeah. then this, you know, this particular part where he's out halfway in the water when the duel is going on, not, not like, you know, his body's not halfway in, but his feet are covered in water and it's just beautiful to watch. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. It really captures this probably unrealistic, you know, not really there um, elegance of the duel that is a, more of a spiritual uh, emotional elegance than maybe something we would literally see in front of us if we were just, you know, had recorded this duel in real life. Um, and, and boy, it, it's, you know, I'm sure that has its own issues in representation, but it is uh, just beautiful to watch. There's so much in these, um, mm-hmm. again, filmed in Eastman color, which sometimes has its issues, but sometimes is really used to glorious effect. You know, I think of the umbrellas of Cherbourg or something like that, mm-hmm. but here we have it in one of the best I've ever seen throughout this whole trilogy. Again, that's why I just lament that your first experience was on DVD <laughs> and, and apparently bad because th- yeah. that was one of the best things about all of this was just the, 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 the filmmaking and the capturing it. But, but I know you've got to go. We can't mm-hmm. quite dismiss Toshiro Mifune. We've talked about him. Well, right. I mean, I was but... about to say the fact that he's out there on the beach doing these <laughs> moves. He, he, this was not calling the stunt man now, you know, yeah. let's, let's, get, let's, let's get pretty boy off camera here. So that the real <laughs> athletes, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, Mifune is fantastic. This is such an important performance uh, because again, it's him in mm-hmm. that uh, archetypal samurai role Whereas with Kikuchio and Seven Samurai, again, he's he's the wild man, and he has yeah, his own he, transformation uh, often, there. Right? Uh, he mm-hmm. has that reputation of mm-hmm. of wild and maybe even overacting. I mean, even oh, even yeah. in Russia, a ham, and, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. But and he has those moments maybe at the beginning of this, but to see him kind of he himself pulls back like you would expect Musashi Miyamoto too. You know, he's mm-hmm. it's much more introspective and reflective, and yeah, I mean, I already loved Mifune, but this elevated again in my estimation of him as an actor and as someone that I just want to see whatever he's done, you know, which is yeah. too much for me to watch in a lifetime. Well, but, uh, <laughs> we, we know about him largely, of course, through his collaborations with Akira Kurosawa, and they're rightfully famous, but apparently he made even more films with Inagaki, the mm-hmm. director of these three, uh, because... Mifune was very, very much a very popular and very busily employed actor throughout this whole era. And what you see with Kurosawa is 
is this whole range of different character types, including something like I Live in Fear, where you almost forget that it's Mifune underneath the glasses and the makeup <laughs> and all of that. Um, but yeah, it, it's this is this is a really pivotal role. So if you if you consider yourself a Mifune fan, uh, or if you've just been drawn in by what he's done in the Kurosawa films, this is like right up there. I, this may be among his top. You know, two or three performances, I think, because it's just, like I say, so foundational and so important of a series of films uh, to sort of see almost like the canonical presentation of samurai lore on film so that all of the twists and variations, you know, you sort of see what they're reacting to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, David, it, it I believe it's time. Um, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I am surprised still, uh, um, you know, we've been going for about an hour and five minutes. Mm-hmm. I, I really feel like we got a chance to, to discuss these films and not give them short shrift, though I will oh, acknowledge, yeah. just like we would in any situation, there's a lot more to discover, a lot more to talk about. But I'm I'm very happy that we had this chance to converse about about them this morning. Uh, as is often the case, it just has made me glad for the opportunity to have seen them and yeah. to look forward to a date when I can revisit them, you know, with some of your thoughts in mind and um, appreciate them even more. This was this was a good opportunity. And I know I know we've got another one coming up that'll be quite different in, in mm-hmm. tone and style. And uh, yeah. as far as our next inside the box episode, uh, do you want to see you kind of you mentioned it on um, <laughs> on your TikTok? Do you want to yeah. let listeners know what you're thinking for the next? one? Sure. Yeah. Our next one is going to be Vim Vendor's The Road Trilogy. Uh, again, one of those gorgeous, beautiful box sets that uh, just has all of the bells and whistles. Mm-hmm. I did a little clip. I've been getting a lot of requests from uh, people who follow me there to show off different uh, Vim Vendors films. And one of them was the Road Trilogy. It's like, yeah, uh, let's go ahead and get that one next on Inside yeah. the Box once we get the Samurai Trilogy done. Again, this is this is a pretty slim, I mean, all you get really for special features is just a kind of a, a, a series of interviews with a scholar. He's actually the guy who translated the Book of the Five Rings. And there's um, a little bit of a, yeah. the booklet contains kind of a summary mm-hmm. of the Book of Five Rings. Yeah, that's exactly. Worth so. Right, very, very much so. And he did so, that. Um, this really feels a little bit more, you know, trimmed down. I, they could have done a little bit more with it, I think, and maybe had even more of the artwork. Cause I really love the new cover, certainly much better than the, the old versions mm-hmm. there, but well, uh, you yeah. go onto their website, each of the, each of the films has their own artwork that's reflective of this style. It's I'm sure it's yeah. by the same artist and yet they're no, nowhere to be found in the, in the disc, the, you know, the physical release itself, which is a shame. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's it's nice and compact on the shelf, but I wouldn't have mind three little digipacks with the artwork and all of that if they had felt so inclined. Um, but yeah, I, I give this a very strong endorsement to anybody who really appreciates Japanese cinema, samurai films, Toshiro Mifune. I like the music too. I mean, the music is almost, again, mm-hmm. that sort of basic archetypal heroic theme. Uh, it sets the tone, and I'll always have that da-da-da-da-da-da running through my head when I think about these movies, you know? <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it's been a great conversation. I know we probably could have another good half hour picking apart various details, but I do need to get moving along. So thanks for joining me this morning, Trevor. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, David. We'll see you later. 